We're certainly thankful, no doubt, that we've been blessed with the opportunity to assemble today. And isn't it amazing that some of the songs we've sung are so encouraging and uplifting? These songs that we have sung with spirit and with understanding, to borrow the words of 1 Corinthians 14, 15, continue to always serve as such a tremendous blessing for our assemblies. Today, as you may have already noted, either in the bulletin or perhaps on the wall behind me, our lesson this morning will give some thought to this, to this idea that truth is narrow. The concept of narrowness on the one hand and the concept of truth on the other are certainly both worthy of some attention and some careful deliberation. And today I would hope that with your Bible in hand, you and I for the next few moments can give some thought to this consideration that truth is narrow. This introductory slide is one that merely will motivate some of our considerations today. You and I know what it means for something to be true. It means that that which is under discussion is in accord to reality. To say that something's true is to say that it is a description of that which truly will take place or already is. The Bible, of course, often uses the word truth well over 300 times. You find that that word appears, and thus, on so many occasions, it is a vital part of that which is the revelation of God. I would even offer to you that some of the most familiar verses likely in all the Bible will contain either the word true or the word truth. For example, in John 8, 32, Ye, Jesus said, shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 23, verse 23, By the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding, just two among so many others that might well have been noted. But again, it's easy to note then that truth is something which the Word of God readily discusses and presents. And today, why don't we give some appreciation to the narrowness connected to it. It's truly fair to say that there are a number of qualities that truth has, but surely one of them is narrowness, and that'll be the topic and subject of our discussion today. This next slide will, in fact, motivate us perhaps even more thoroughly as we are invited to consider the nature of truth. So we've already learned by definition what it is. Why don't we, though, speak about what it is needed in terms of today's consideration? We all know that there are so many realities which it seems are under constant threat. Some of the most well-regarded, some of the most highly respected, some of the most long-traditioned behaviors in our land and our world are facing a current onslaught of opposition in which folks with different ideas, folks with different approaches, folks with different perspectives will thus allege that these more seasoned and old-fashioned, in their mind, appreciations are really not the way it needs to be. You maybe have heard the word relativism. The idea of relativism is there's no such thing as truth. Everything is relative. You have the opportunity, so folks will say, to determine for you what's truth, but that not, might not be what's true for me. Others under the banner of relativism will assert that here's something that at least for that person will occupy a place of recognized truth, but that it may be different from some, for somebody else. 
The idea then that relativism has begun to reign so supreme. Maybe you've heard about the idea of a postmodern world. There was a time that there was much discussion about modernism. We quite frankly have gone to postmodernism by now. And relativism is a key part of it. It's a key plank in the platform of the modern viewpoint of postmodernism. You'll notice thus, one could easily mention many things. I've chosen just a few, but you no doubt could list others. You know that there has been much recent discussion about what really is marriage. Even the legislators and the judicial branches of our government have waged in and given their appreciation to this. We understand that. More recently, there's been discussion about abortion. We all know the uprising that many have come to see as not only a constitutional right, but a right of basic existence. Now, the fact of all of that leads us to say that there would be many who would say, well, what difference does it make? Let each person decide for him or herself what would be the right viewpoint or perspective for them, and just let it go that way. But you know, and I do as well, that truth is narrow. If truth has a say in this, and of course it does, then truth does not allow any other appreciations. It doesn't allow any other viewpoints. As you and I close that slide, we know that one of the matters that seemingly still is waging a rather notable place is gender issues in our land. Men and women in our land, boys and girls, want to have the right to say whether he or she is a boy or a girl. They want to have the right to choose which pronouns they use. Maybe this biological boy wants to be referred to as a she. And in our current culture, that supposedly is to be allowed. Now, I say all of that to at least remind us, and none of that has been at all a revelation. We understand the kind of issues that our society faces, and we seemingly understand the basis upon which many are trying to allege a, 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 a matter of resolution. But truth is narrow. This next slide will be one that invites you to take just a brief consideration with me about the book that you hold in your lap. This Bible, this Word of God, this sacred Scripture, might we note that it is truth. The first point I would invite you to notice is a bit of a distinction. There are some who might be quick to say the Bible contains truth. May I say, that's not really correct. It's not that it contains it, it is truth. For if you claim that it contains truth, then what else does it contain besides truth? It may contain things that are not true if you take that viewpoint. But the Word of God is true. Let's allow the Son of God Himself to, to weigh in upon that consideration. In John 17, verse 17, The Son of God Himself said, Sanctify them through Thy truth, Thy word is truth. And thus Jesus highlighted the beautiful matter, the issue that the Word of God is truth. Now that's only one verse among so many others that might have been chosen. I chose to list several from the Psalms. Psalm 33, among, among one place. But Psalm 119 has several verses. You may be well aware that that's the longest chapter in all the Bible. 176 verses. 
And of the 176, 172 of them lay claim to the Word of God. Describe it and refer to it in one way or another. And in so doing, they place it upon the highest plateau. The Bible is true. We live in a time when there are many who are quick to call the Bible into question. Well, that's just the way you see it. I don't happen to believe in that old-fashioned book. I believe in modern science, or I believe in modern psychology. Might you and I be quick to say, science and psychology have their places. And surely we would not call that into question. But those books are not going to be open on the Day of Judgment. No psychology book is going to be open at the Day of Judgment. No science text will be open at the Day of Judgment. What will be opened is the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, inspired Word of God, and your life and mine shall be judged in harmony with it. And oh, how longingly we should hope that our life is in compliance with it. But you might note this on that slide. There are some rather impressive descriptions of the Word of God. And would you note just a few of them in passing? 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the Word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe. What a compliment was paid to the church at Thessalonica. It was to them that Paul said, When you heard what we preached, you did not hear it as the word of men. You didn't take it as the speculative opinion of somebody whose opinion is no better than anybody else's. You appreciated it as the word of God. And that statement of them should be a description of you and me as well. That, that word of God is taken exactly as God revealed it. That issue in truth then takes us to that next passage in 2 Timothy 2.15. That admonition, that requirement given to all of us to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. You see, Paul to Timothy made note of the existence of truth and highlighted the necessity to rightly divide it. You see, it is possible to take this book and use it to teach things that are not true. Countless people have done it through the ages. To take things that are not rightly divided, to use one verse and claim it contradicts another, or take one passage and use it to teach what the context doesn't permit. The Word of God is true. You and I must handle it rightly. For that reason, wasn't it James who asserted that it is the engrafted Word which is able to save your souls. Now, we've at least so far made note of God's Word as truth, and it brings us to inch somewhat closer to make a note of the relation to truth. Now that we have the Bible as our standard in that regard, let's speak for just a moment about the relation to truth. And quite frankly, many of these things nobody would ever call into question, but I would offer to you the thought that people don't treat the Bible the same way in many cases. Consider this example. At the top, I listed for you this issue. Suppose there's a veterinarian who, in fact, upon the analysis of, let's say, the animal, and I chose a particular bull, but the veterinarian finds that the, the bull is sick. 
that medicine is in order and makes a prescription of 750 milligrams per 500 pounds of animal. The bull weighs 1,800 pounds. How much medicine do you give him? Now, at this point, you and I, with no trouble, can figure out the answer. What if you give the bull far too little? What if you give him far too much? Do numbers matter? Is there a truth in connection to what the veterinarian said? Of course there is. You and I know well you give the bull too little, the medicine will probably do very little good. But if you give far too much, you may damage the animal in irreparable ways. Truth is narrow. May I say, what about area or perimeter? Perhaps there's a certain plot of land and you wish to not only determine its area, but to fence it in. You have to know how much fence to buy. You have to know how many staples or nails or fencing to obtain. On the slide, I perhaps gave you this example. A particular area, 30 feet by 40 feet. Now, with all of those things listed, easy enough to find both the area and the perimeter. Our mathematician friends and probably a fifth grader could easily figure it out. But you and I know this. If you don't buy the right fencing, you'll either have too much for you wasted some money, or you'll have too little and won't be able to complete the job. But either way, there's a connection to the reality of what was needed and what should have been obtained. Truth again is narrow. One more thing might well be noted on that slide. I think not only are we accustomed to narrowness in relation to math, for after all, isn't the basis of our number system that very thing? Consider an instructor who gives a math test to his or her students. And one of the problems is 6 times 4, and one student says 20. Another student says 10. Another one answers 24. Another one answers 30. Would it be a correct thing for the teacher to say, Oh, you were honest and earnest, and I'll just count all of them right? Well, of course, you and I would expect the teacher would be reprimanded, and likely, if that continued, he or she would lose their job. Because there's one correct answer. 30 is not correct. It doesn't matter how earnestly and honestly and with great passion the student may have answered it, it's not right. Same is true of 10, same is true of 20. And so, one is instilled with a consideration that with regard to mathematics, truth is narrow. With regard to science, truth is narrow. With regard to geography, truth is narrow. And so on the slide, I ask you, what if a teacher again gave a quiz? What is the capital city of the state of Alaska? Probably. Some student will say Anchorage, because that's likely the most often heard city, but the fact is Anchorage is not the capital. And so although the student was confident, although the student was emotionally responsive, although the student was quite pleased with his or her answer, and may have believed it strongly, it was wrong. Juneau was the capital of Alaska. 
I believe we're able to see that by itself, emotion is no guide in this matter either. One could honestly believe in something and might well be wrong. One may have heard something said a thousand times, but that doesn't make it right. Truth is narrow. And so on the slide, I've asked another geography question. What if someone were asked, what is the tallest mountain in Africa? If somebody answers Everest, that's not correct. If somebody answers Mount McKinley, that's not correct. Mount Kilimanjaro is the tallest mountain in Africa. And there is no other correct answer. I say all of that to say that aren't we a bit interested to know that quite often we operate on the presumption that truth is narrow. We expect it in math. We expect it in geography. And we demand it in science. One additional application to that would be this. Think about the doctor that you and I visit on occasion. Someone with whom we confide and trust to handle the illnesses or other matters related to our body. Would you be happy for that doctor to have reached that point in life without having the proper credentials? Was it enough that they had a desire to go to medical school? Or is it enough to say that they have a passion for helping people? I believe I could speak for all of us. That's not nearly enough. I want someone who is schooled, educated, skilled, professional, and has passed the various medical examinations and has arrived at his or her place equipped to diagnose and prescribe matters related to the issues that I face. Just because they wanted to be a doctor doesn't mean they can be a competent one. Just because they had some desire from an early age to, uh, to work in that field does not mean that I would wish them to be my doctor. And I'm sure you feel the same. Truth is narrow. What about science? I mentioned that one in passing. Do you realize I could easily sit up on the podium here before all of us one vessel containing water, one containing sulfuric acid, they'll look just alike. Colorless, they look like water. You drink one of them, you'll be refreshed. You drink the other one, it'll kill you. Is truth narrow? What if a person drank the sulfuric acid fully cognizant of the fact, expecting it to be water? Just because he or she expected it to be does not mean that it is and does not mean that it'll be harmless, and does not mean it'll not cause damage. Truth is narrow. It matters. Not only that, look at the next one. Many of you may have had surgery, perhaps on the cornea of your eye, either to repair some particular eye malady. If you had laser surgery, have you ever given thought to the prescriptions connected to that laser? the fine-tuned character of its wavelength, the fine-tuned nature of its frequency, the absolute precision with which it must consider the very placement on the cornea of your eye. One millimeter the wrong direction, your eyesight will be lost. One mistake relative to the frequency or wavelength of that laser, and it'll do more damage and it'll do good. Science has truth embedded in parts of it. And we expect it to be that way. We demand it to be that way. Truth is narrow. I listed you one more. Some of us, perhaps many of us, 
have had radioactive substances injected into our body because that's a good way to search for, for blockages. You inject a radioactive tracer, and that, that element will, in essence, pile up at places where the tumor or the blockage is. And so then you can easily find it. What if the person administering that administered too much? You and I know they'd be fired, and it could cause your death. What if they administered too little? It would not be effective. And along that line, consider anesthesiologists and what a great role they play in connection to the specificity and the truthfulness of that which they do. I say all of that just to invite us to know we're quite comfortable with truth in relation to math or geography or science. But suddenly we are happy to throw out the whole concept when it comes to the Bible. Supposedly everybody can read it the way he or she wants, conclude anything that he or she might feel, and a claim that everything is okay. Such is quite nonsensical, isn't it? If math is true, and science is true, and geography is true, and the Bible is true, why not treat all of them at least in a parallel fashion? Over the last portion of our sermon time, our discussion time this morning, could I invite you then to think about the narrowness that is connected in light of the Word of God. That narrowness that is in fact stated in several passages of Scripture. And as we look at some of these in turn, I hope we'll be reminded that we hold a book that not only claims to be the truth, but that of course will necessarily be narrow. Why don't we begin with this one? I've chosen several themes, several topics upon which the human family sometimes has offered questions. But as we begin all of that, could we at least mention this? The text of Romans 4, 7 says that forgiveness of sins is possible. It is available. It is something that can be had. Now, the fact is, how does that forgiveness come about? Well, as the slide will quickly point out to us, we understand it comes only through Jesus Christ. There is no other. There's only one means, one mechanism whereby that can be obtained. But someone might say, that's awfully narrow. That's surely quite limited, isn't it? And to that you'd not say, absolutely it is. Because that's the way truth is. In the same way, you and I learned earlier that there was one response, one answer to that mathematics question. How many ways are there to heaven? The Bible says one. Only one. Didn't Jesus say in John 14, 6, it was the text that Brother John read earlier. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But someone says, I want to follow Confucius. I want to follow Buddha. I want to be an adherent to the mysticism of the Eastern religions. Lose your soul if you do that. There is no forgiveness available in those mechanisms. There is no salvation available in those names. Because neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. Now that text of Acts 4.12 is very specific and very narrow, isn't it? 
you'll notice as you continue on that slide, what about this consideration? How many churches are there? That one is, of course, one over which great offense has been taken by many. The number of churches? Some of the latest figures put the number at a bit over 40,000 Christian churches. That's not counting, of course, the Catholic ones and the whole host of Eastern ones. Over 40,000. Now, we really couldn't care less what men may say. How many does the Bible say there are? And that, of course, should be our answer. And it's the one to which we will give the greatest of our adherents. The Bible says there's one. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul would later say in Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body, only one. I suppose many would wish to block out that particular part of that verse because it would appear too narrow to their thinking and too narrow to their preferences, far too narrow to be palatable. And yet the Word of God still says there's one. Isn't it amazing, the narrowness of truth? The appreciation, what that demands of us is to set aside our thinking and humbly submit to that which the Bible testifies and teaches And, oh God, by faith, we will be happy to do what you say. You may notice on that slide then this one. As far as that text in John 14, 6, how many ways are there to heaven? We've already learned but one. But someone might say, that's sure narrow. Can't there be at least another? What if I don't like that one? Then therein lies the point. You and I have to come to bring ourselves into compliance with the one if we want to go to heaven. I would offer you this thought at the bottom of that slide. It's the fifth observation. We each are aware of the fact that sincerity and emotion is often used as the basis for the acceptance of a particular matter that is called truth. He or she is honest. They're a good neighbor and friend, and they are sincere in what they do. I mentioned it along the way, and isn't it still evident? It doesn't matter how sincere you are. You drink sulfuric acid, sincerely thinking it's water, it'll kill you. Sincerity won't save you. Suppose you picked up a telephone and randomly dialed nine numbers. Sincerely believe, and it'll connect you to the person that you want to call. Not going to happen. I don't care how sincere you are. You can't dial nine random numbers and be connected to the one you wish to call. The probability is far too low. You begin to see with me, sincerity just does not replace truth. Now, it is true that you and I, as we are proponents And those that follow truth were sincere about it, but sincerity is not a replacement for it. For that reason, look at some of these verses. In Proverbs 14, verse number 12, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So Solomon, in the ancient time, made this observation, and surely it hasn't changed, because in it we notice there's a way that appears right. It looks to be palatable, perhaps strongly admonished by many sincere people. But the fact is, 
It's the way of death. It does not lead to salvation. It doesn't lead to where you would wish it to. to. Truth is narrow. And so strong is the concept connected to that passage that it's reiterated verbatim two chapters later. Proverbs 16.25 I've asked you to also note this one in Jeremiah 17.9 When it comes to religion especially, it seems as if a strong statement that's often made is this one. But I believe it in my heart. Now, I confess to you, I've never been faced with that as a teacher. No student who's missed a math question has ever come to me and said, but I believe in my heart that that was right. I've never faced that one. But in religion, I often heard stated, but I believe that that's the way it is. Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all wickedness, and desperately wicked, who can know it? Is it possible to be deceived? Absolutely. And can that deception be strong? Of course it can. And we are reminded in a verse like that one that the heart is readily deceived. And in that case, of course, you shouldn't expect it to be a promoter of the truth because truth is narrow. I close that slide by underlining that statement one more time. Truth is narrow. And the narrowness connected to the truth in many ways ought to be a refreshing comfort to us. But as you and I have noted, it's quite offensive to many. I hope that as we've at least reminded ourselves of the narrowness of truth today, it brings us to this closing slide of our lesson today. Truth is narrow. The Word of God presents these matters. And you and I do a great injustice if we claim to be a Christian, but then turn our back upon these verses and try to excuse them. Jesus is the one and only way to salvation. His blood is the one and only agent to cleanse sin. In John 14, 6, it needed a reminder then of His place and the gospel that He put in place because obedience to the gospel is the only way to have our sins forgiven and to live faithfully under the banner of that truth. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, as Paul addressed the church at Thessalonica to them, he said, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. Vengeance is going to be taken upon those that don't obey the gospel. doesn't matter how sincere they might have been. It doesn't matter how earnest they might have been. Maybe they were misled by a false teacher, as sad as that is. It won't change the situation. Maybe they were deceived by a family member. As sad as that is, it won't change the situation. Obedience to the gospel is a, is a necessary matter. Have you and I taken care of that? Have we brought our lives into compliance with it? If we have obeyed the gospel initially, as we believed repented, confessed, and were baptized, have we continued to live in harmony with that gospel? For you notice that the word obey that he used, and as that word appears in other passages, it reminds us of the ongoing necessity connected with our faithful adherence. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. As Jesus made those remarks to that church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 verse 10, 
doesn't it help us see today of the importance of asking the question, am I faithful? Are you? And if we find ourselves in such a way we cannot answer yes, it's time to do something about it. Repent of those sins, make confession of them, and the Lord has promised to forgive because the truth is narrow. And if we could help anyone in your response today, we'd be happy to do it while together we stand and while we sing.